It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOT podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at cboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at cboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. In addition to cboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at turnboot.com. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to our weekly gathering of IOs, HR recruiters, and all of us who like to help people working in the field of business, including one actor. Uh, We're here today with Dr. Destiny. Uh, She's gonna lead our discussion. And Dr. Destiny, really sort of interesting topic today. We're gonna talk about how to get buy-in for your ideas at work, and create advocates for your initiatives. I think we have all <laughs> been trying to get people to listen to us, let alone buy into what we're saying, and then to get, actually get them to support us and what we want to do. This sounds um, juicy. How do we do that? Good question. So I think this is an opportunity, particularly for IO psychology professionals, to bring the IO stuff into a workplace, no matter where you are. So many people are focused on, you know, that golden IO job out there, you know, that they want to, you know, apply for and and be part of. But the, the reality is, there's so many opportunities to bring in initiatives into a workplace. And so today, I wanted to kind of frame this through an organizational perspective, or at least what the research says about why this should be important, you know, for organizations to consider and leaders to consider. And so there was a study done by a uh, person named Barrett, and they identified five primary goals for in, for messages, or sorry, for internal communication in times of an organization, organizations change. So a lot of initiatives are coming around times of change, right? And so aligning employees behind a company's strategic and overall performance improvement goal is super critical. And they can do that through various ways. Uh, Two ways that they talked about in here is behavioral support. So assuming the active role of employees in organizational change, the extent to which employees resist or support change initiative, it's critical for the implementation of the change. Behavioral support has been conceptualized using a continuum ranging from active resistance to cooperation and even championing the change initiative. So considering, you know, who in the organization maybe have some uh, some influence, you know, considering this idea of a shared ownership in change and how to kind of, you know, allow your employees to really be champions of change. And then a real quick too, a communication climate is really important for change, right? And for initiatives. 
So communication climate is defined as the shared perceptions employees have of the psychological climate, relationship quality, and communication in organizations. Because communication is climate is developed at the individual level, it is recommended that managers provide each employee with adequate information and opportunities to speak out, get involved, be listened to, and actively participate. So if organizations are interested in how to get people to step up and you know talk about initiatives and change, then those things are important. The behavioral support and the organizational uh, climate, the, the communication climate. So I'll leave well, it there. I, um, well, I love what, you, what what you're saying because we are in a time of change. And, and <laughs> I've been flying the flag for months now that you need an IO to help you through this change, which is coming. And, and we see more and more that the employees have to be involved in the change. They have to be in support and they need their voices heard. Um, and we had a great conversation um, yesterday on Twitter Spaces, and Linda Ann and Dr. Martha were there about how to create psychological safety in an environment so everybody does feel like they can participate in this. Um, what kind of change do you see happening as we move forward? I mean, it's, it's, it's a world of unknown right now. I mean, I've heard people say that this is the greatest change since the Industrial Revolution that you know, even the way that we work is going to change, which is absolutely true. Uh, employees have a lot more say now in how they work, when they work. So it's great that you know this discussion is coming from the organizational perspective of if we're going to have change, and if you don't change, you're going to be non-existent in five or 10 years potentially, uh, but really involving the employees as well. So how is that a change from, say, 20 or 30 years ago when it was really your incentive was your wage? Because I'm hearing that wage is not the number one factor anymore when people are looking at employment. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I know that there's so many other people on this call that can absolutely kind of contribute to that. But real quick, one of the, you know, it's very obvious that there is a lot of you know, listening going on, right? Because look at the initiatives just from a DEI perspective, like look at that, you know, look at the relevancy of DEI now, and it's always been relevant, but now it's just more, you know, once again, going back to psychological safety, people feel more comfortable in sharing and, you know, bringing up those kinds of initiatives in a workplace. So, and I, I think one of the best parts about our field, which is also sometimes the most challenging parts about our field is that we do, our, our field's very relevant. It's very current and it's very trendy. And so a lot of those change initiatives are very trendy topics, which is good, but it can be challenging to get people on board to understand what that looks like because there's no research really that showcases best practices and things like that. So that's where we come in and can provide a little bit of, you know, expertise and peace of mind, I think. Right. Uh, Linda Ann, I'd love to go to the HR side of this because you know, with your experience, change is a constant. So how have organizations traditionally dealt with this type of change? And what are going to be some of the roadblocks in the path to, to getting there? Wow, that wasn't the question I thought you were going to ask, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I like to keep you on your toes. <laughs> uh, uh, repeat the first part again, please. So what are going to be some of the roadblocks? I mean, change is constant, and we, we already have, like, We've been going through change for the last 200 years, maybe not this great of a shift, but how traditionally have organizations dealt with change? Because, you know, from my perspective, change has come, but it's never been sort of 
let's ask the people it affects. Let's talk to the employees and see how we can evolve the organization. But it seems there is a willingness now. But once again, that might that's a perspective that's coming from the outside. Are organizations really going to grab onto this type of change? <clears throat> My experience is that that most organizations or maybe a lot of organizations don't tend to make change until they're they're really feeling the pain of the required change. And so uh, that's one factor. You know, the if you ha- are in an organization or are working with an organization that is that focused on being cutting edge, that's a little bit different where they want to know what the latest and greatest is and how can they be uh, out in the front. But for the most part, I think that that most and I think this is true for a lot of people is most of the time they don't embrace change until it's absolutely necessary. And it's it's a quote life or death kind of situation where they, you know, it's a it's a success or failure requirement. So I think that's where a lot of companies are, you know, being an advocate in the midst of that. I think is where I think our challenge really lies. Yeah, I've been on this path for two years now going, companies are going to have to change. <laughs> but it's in the last few months that companies are starting to go, I think we need to change. Uh, Lee, let's go to you. You know, I, I think this is a twofold kind of thing, because uh, I think that for a while now, we've been seeing the, the, the buy-in, whatever, on a micro scale. So like on a work center. So uh, you know, if I'm running a work center and I'm really paying attention to my people and they come up and they say, hey, I've got a better way to do this. It'll save us time. OK, well, I'm listening. And I, I think that in a lot of situations, you have that sort of thing happening and it may not be going all the way up the chain. Every now and then you get somebody that goes, hey, boss, man, we really need to recognize this person who's done a fantastic thing. Often that doesn't happen, though. Um, I think where we're seeing the, the seismic shift is the you know, organization writ large, paying more attention to their people. And uh, part of that, I think, is the the uh, the mobile nature of employment now. You know, people who are just like, you know what, I'm out, see ya, and moving on to another, the next great thing. And if you really want to keep your people, then you, you know, you have to do something to keep them. And a lot of times that is as little as, as making them feel heard. And, and not only that, uh, I mean, just in this group, Talking to, you know, some of the, the uh, you know, the early career and the students or whatever else. And it's like, wow, these people are smart. And, you know, they are learning things in school now that I didn't learn when I was in school or I've forgotten because it's been a little bit. And so if I've got these people in my organization, I should be listening because they know things that I don't. And, uh, you know, I'm like the, the, you know, the saying goes, you know, even if you're in the fast lane, you're going to get run over if you just stand there. So, you know, right now, if you want to get the people and you want to keep the people, then you need to listen to them because you know, they've got other options. Um, and, and you're right. The classic thing is the organizations to be drag creaking and screaming into change. And I think that that means. Yeah, I like the idea that if you, if you put all that time into hiring the best people, listen to them, which yeah. doesn't really seem to happen. Uh, Dr. Martha, let's go to you. Well, we've talked about how difficult change is so many times. But, you know, when we're talking about change and the idea of buy-in, whether we're looking for buy-in from employees or whether we're looking for buy-in from management, what it comes down to is individuals. Because what is an organization, after all, 
other than a collection of human beings. And if you look at an individual person, just generally speaking, and you present them with change of some sort, what's the first thing that probably comes to their mind? What's in it for me? And that's where that pain point may become more obvious. So um, as was already mentioned, organizations may not change until they have no choice until um, you know, their, their profits are down, or maybe there's a lawsuit in the making or some fines or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think that once you're able to identify and present that what's in it for me um, in some kind of format, then buy-in becomes less of a challenge. When people are invested in something, when they have a sense of ownership of something, an idea, uh, if that idea pertains to change as well, then I think it's much more likely to get support and cooperation from people and organizations at large collectively, because then you have something invested in it, you have a sense of ownership, and now it's not just something that you're forced to do, you participated in moving towards something new towards a change, towards an improvement. Even if you're just trying it out to see if it works, nothing has to be written in stone. Let's have some ideas. Let's try it. See if this helps us. If it does, great. If it doesn't, we'll look at something else. But that, you know, human nature, what's in it for me? Let's get people, whether it's at the top or within the workforce, let's get them involved and invested and have a sense of ownership. And I think then buy-in and change in the end will be a little less difficult. Um, you were part of that great conversation yesterday about psychological safety. Can we do any of this if we haven't established that? Well, it's going to be a lot harder, I think, because... Yeah. How can you take ownership or speak up to participate in, let's say, uh, brainstorming or, or making suggestions if you don't feel safe to do so? So I think that would be a serious, uh, serious challenge in the process. Yeah, I totally agree. Linda Ann, let's go to you. So I, I love this topic because I've been challenged by it many times. <laughs> but I, I have a, a friend who works on kind of this same, this actual idea. And one of the things that she recommends is that you always have a mentor, an ally, and a champion within the organization. All right, the mentor, we know kind of what that 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 is. The ally is someone within the organization kind of at your same level, right, that you can sit in those meetings with and you have each other's back. You're always on the same page, you know, and things like that. And then you need a champion, someone who is at a level above you, who can, whether you're in that meeting or not, you know, take up your cause, have your back, those kinds of things. So that's kind of a, a framework if you're working within an organization to to look at. And then when you go to present your idea or speak up about it or whatever it is, I never went into a meeting cold, ever. I would always work the meeting bef before the meeting, you know, work the room before the meeting, as I, as I would call it. And you go to the different people that you expect to be in that room and, you know, what's wrong with this idea? Tell me, poke holes in it for me so that I'm ready, you know, just even if you don't, aren't telling them that you're going to bring it up in the meeting, but to ask for all of that feedback and get your answers precise before you ever go into that meeting. Then once you've done that and you speak up in the meeting, 
then you've got your ally there who's hold, having your back. And if it comes up elsewhere, you've got a champion, again, who has your back on that idea. And you've bounced it all that uh, across uh, those people all along. So that's one process that can really help you move something forward. In addition to making sure that when you do it in that meeting or wherever you're doing it, that the right decision makers are in that meeting. Yeah, great advice. Uh, Dr. Oriana, let's go to you. Hi. Yeah, I love that we're kind of transitioning to talking about what the employee can do, because I think so often we talk about what leaders can do, but a lot of the workforce is just employees that maybe only lead up to one major stakeholder, meaning their boss. And so I think in this area, I think the keys are communication and persistence. I, too, have experienced having this good idea, but having to be very persistent about it. And I think it relates to what we've been saying around change is hard and our managers have a lot on their plate. They don't necessarily want to entertain new ideas that are going to take more work and different things. Um, so an example from one of my past roles was we were rolling out an action leadership challenge where we would lead executives through an investigation of real organizational problems. And they had me do just a tiny bit of research for one of our presentations on this model. And I discovered that, you know, this model goes way beyond just investigating the problem. And then it involves implementation and coaching leaders through implementation. And so we had several companies going through this kind of process. And I was like, where's our phase two? Like, what are we going to do once they reach the implementation phase? And my leaders were like, eh, we've never done that before. It's not needed. But there was like a burning passion in my heart where I was like, this needs to be done. Like, we should create some things around that. And I think those are kind of the ideas that employees have, you know, when they're passionate about something, it's usually for a reason, you know, and so, but it does require that persistence. So during my, you know, if you ever have a little extra time during your role to work on other activities, I allocated all my time to that. I created materials, communication guides and decks, and I was just at the ready and it got shut down. It got shut down and months pass. And eventually they got to the end of their program and they were like, oh, we're being asked for, you know, the implementation side. And I was like, well, I have the materials right here. And so other consulting partners took those materials, adapted them and ended up being successful. But, you know, without that persistence for your idea and why it matters and helping it bring it to fruition, it's just sounding like more work on your manager's end. Yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, and we're probably all the same way where, you know, we've all worked for organizations and we've had great ideas that would have made the organization better and nobody was listening. Um, and But maybe now that is changing. Uh, Brittany, let's go to you. Yeah, I really appreciated Dr. Thompson's points there, especially about organizations are made up of employees and we need to arm the ones that have ideas to get them where they need to go. And those of us that are IOs and we identify as being in the change management space need to understand not only do you have to make whoever it is that's going to champion your thing up the chain, help them understand how this idea of yours makes them look good to their boss, and then get full understanding from them, make sure that they get what you're saying and the benefits, then they're going to pitch it to anyone that they can, because they become the hero, they can make it work. And I've noticed as I have identified more and more as like, I am in the change management space. This is what IOs do. I've realized it is so easy to slip into the mindset that leaders are this like stagnant bad guy group. And I used to, I wouldn't say that, of course, but I'd come at it with that mentality that like, they're the ones we have to force to change. And yes, leaders have to change before anybody else can change, but they're doing what they're doing for a reason. 
It's getting them some kind of result. It got them to where they are today. They can't stay where they are today. And there's an element of they're comfortable because they've been doing this for a while, but they need to understand that you see them as a human and that you understand why they do what they do. You see how that got them outcomes that they needed for whatever reason. Then you're walking beside them instead of pushing against them and saying, you have to change. You have to change. Here's all the data. Here's all the data. You have to change. You're going to get left behind. So I have tried. It's tough (laughs) to maintain the the change in my own mindset. But instead of saying like, you're going to get left behind or trying to use like fear tactics, essentially, I didn't know that was what I was doing, but that's what I was trying to fight with. Just come alongside them. I would probably do the same thing if I was in their shoes. Well, it's it's about hitting those pain points, isn't it? But but you know, you kind of had me at I can make you a superhero. That that sold me, and I think if <laughs> I think it might be the right approach with a lot of leaders. Mm. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. I want to <clears throat> uh, just re uh, support what Dr. Uh, Ariana was saying, and that's you know sometimes the persistence is really important. And I've been in organizations where. You, know, you had to keep saying it until it became their idea, you know. So you ha- sometimes you have to let go of the the need for any acknowledgement or credit that it that you look at more of, you know, how important is it to just get this organization to move forward with this? It doesn't really matter who takes the credit or where it comes from. So I think that's a real thing that we need to, whether we're employees or consultants or whatever it is, need to acknowledge if you want to get results, sometimes it really, you have to let go of how it gets there. So uh, there's, there's that piece. And then, um, and, and with them is always a factor. And one of the things that's I've had success with frequently is when there's an issue, you know, when there's a particular problem, I can bring it up and also come with the solution. If I can say, oh, are you aware of X? And this is, you know, the problem that it's causing. Here's what I would like to do because of it. And so now they've been aware of the problem, but you've come with the solution and they go, yes, go for it. Yeah, you, <laughs> you come with solutions, <laughs> not with problems, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, it's true. I remember a few years ago working with some colleagues in a, in a post-secondary and I had this great idea, which I shared with a couple of my colleagues who were kind of mm, about it. Two weeks later, I'm in a meeting and one of them goes, I had a dream last night and presented my idea and I got accepted. (laughs) She had a few dreams over the next couple of years. Uh, Dr. Martha, let's go to you. Well, Tom, that is just absolutely something else because I had a similar experience when I was a very young employee. I presented an idea at a meeting and my boss shut me down right away. That will never work. Two weeks later, she presented this whole same same exact idea as though she discovered, I don't know, sliced bread. But anyway, <laughs> and it was a great idea then. <clears throat> but, um, you know, the importance here is speaking the right language to your audience. And this has been alluded to by the previous speakers already. So it's like marketing. Know what's going to um, get through, um, what, what kind of language will get through to your audience. Is it logic that's going to get them hooked on your idea? Is it emotion? Is it a little bit of both? Um, Is it making you into a hero? You jumped on that idea. So this is so important. It's it's marketing, basically. If you know your audience, it's so much um, more helpful to you as a presenter of an idea 
to get that buy-in. Because if we are speaking the wrong language to the audience in question, then you're spinning your wheels. It's, you're not going anywhere. So if, if you mean your best, but you're essentially using uh, fear tactics, as was mentioned, and if your audience doesn't respond to that, maybe even backs away from you, you are scratching your head. Why don't you get this? I'm trying to help you. But it's really just pushing them away because it's the wrong approach. So understanding your audience, knowing your audience and the language that will work for them uh, is so key here. Uh, let me ask you this, because you, you, know, you mentioned the communication aspect and it's, you know, it's like marketing. If you don't have good communication, your marketing doesn't happen too well. Um, we're very lucky here that we've got a bunch of IOs and HR professionals who are confident in speaking, you know, and getting on this program, getting in front of a microphone, sharing your ideas. But a lot of people, even if you're an IO or an HR professional, it's sometimes difficult to gain that confidence to stand in front of a group of your peers or people that you might be presenting to who you want you know, to hire you. So, you know, and I can, as a voice and speech guy, I can talk about the proper way to breathe and, you know, making sure that you're grounded, but how do, does an IO, especially you, you know, in your career, get over stage fright of that, you know, that fear of sharing your ideas and being heard? Well, I think the answer is twofold. Number one, you have to find a way of communicating that is comfortable for you and maybe that's the one you start with and then expand your horizons and try different things that maybe made you nervous in the past. But it's on the individual who is trying to convey the idea. How important is it for you to get this idea out there, right? Is the fear greater than your belief in, in how good this idea is? Or are you going to you know, swallow your fear and, and persevere? And if that means finding alternative ways that are less scary to start with, then that's what you do. So really, it goes back to responsibility, and hopefully it's a safe environment in which you can share. Thank you very much for that. Linda Ann, let's go to you. I think also it, it takes a little bit of practice and it takes a little bit of time. And so if you're a person who wants to have their ideas heard in the future, you can start out in, in particular meetings or whatever and just making a comment about someone else's information and establish some uh, groundswell of credibility as you go when you are and, and then you're not taking huge risk, you're not responsible for the whole idea, but you get your feet wet a little bit. And then as you become more comfortable at that level, you can take more initiative or come out with more information and just establish yourself a, a, a progressively. You know, you don't have to jump off out of the airplane first time, you know? <laughs> well, and, and, and most people don't realize, like, if you go and see a major musical, it's about a hundred hours of rehearsal for every hour on stage. So they're spending somewhere between two and three hundred hours getting ready for that two to three hour performance that you're going to see. Laura, let's go to you. I was going to add in with your question about finding the confidence in doing that is I think it's finding the, your sweet spot. A lot of the commentary is about practice and I completely advocate practice. I talk out loud to myself all the time, practicing conversations. But another thing I found is finding that sweet spots on where you're confident. Are you really confident as a storyteller? Are you really confident in the evidence? And some of it's going to be dependent on the audience you're talking to. Certain management leadership is going to feel more comfortable 
knowing that evidence and seeing your research and they don't want the touchy feely story. And some individuals are going to need the hook of a story for them to want to hear the data. And so some of it is the practice and the knowing your audience, but also kind of give yourself the confidence by practicing in your sweet spot, finding that story or finding that hook or talking about the data. And as you, when you know what you're talking about, when you have that confidence that I have this expertise on this, it's much easier to talk into your confidence and into your sweet spot. And that confidence helps in the buy-in. I think I, I agree with the communication and the marketing and the strategy of it, but walking into the room, owning it, owning your Zoom frame box here, <laughs> and having the confidence as you're speaking is a, is an aspect of why people will buy in. If they believe that you are an expert in what you're talking about, they're much more likely to listen to you than if you don't seem like you've got your footing. So yeah, that was my two cents. Well, you know, I think you're exactly right. And I've been spending some time recently uh, looking at people who are like, get in touch with me. And for a price, I'll help you prepare your TED talk. Um, and <laughs> um, I don't think you need that coach. Uh, but getting that TED talk, getting that 10 to 15 minute together, speaking on your passion, sharing your ideas, I think is one of the best ways to promote and market yourself. Uh, and if you do need some help, get in touch with me. Uh, Dr. Ariana, let's go to you. Yeah, I just wanted to also highlight something that's kind of been alluded to, but also doing the research behind your idea, like how it's marketable, what other competitors are doing. It depends really on what the idea is because ideas are so vast. So with a previous example I've shared before with like manufacturing floors, feeling very strongly that shipments could go somewhere else. That's more of like a simple idea that needs persistence. But with many other corporate jobs that we're doing, our ideas need more research. They need to connect back to the team's purpose, the company's purpose, really see that integration so that managers can understand that you've really put time into your idea. You understand it. You understand how it fits into the macrocosm of your organization. Um, and I think also being very um, well-versed in your own perspective will help you to have that confidence as well. Yeah, I agree. Lee, let's go to you. Yeah, you know, I just wanted to uh, to kind of piggyback off something that, that Laura said about going in and making sure that you have the information, you have your facts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one thing that uh, I've seen people get hemmed up on is, uh, you know, answer the question you're asked. So that question may be you asking yourself, or it may be your audience asking the question. But when you start throwing in tidbits that are maybe not directly related, or they're kind of in the set, when you open that door, uh, high-ranking people have a tendency to kick it open and walk right through. And you suddenly find yourself in territory that you're not familiar with. And you start having, that's when you start to fumble because they start asking questions you don't know the answer to, that maybe not necessarily related to what you're trying to do. And you have lost control. You know, the plane is spinning and down you're going. So be very, very careful when you go in there on the extraneous things that you put in for, you know, icebreakers, asking, answering questions, whatever it is, because man, you will crash and burn in a hurry if you're not careful. I, I always will coach speakers to know the difference between what you want to say and what your audience needs to hear. Because if you miss that mark, you will lose them and you cannot move into action. Laura, let's go to you. I feel like one of the best examples of what Lee was talking about is if you watch um, politicians and debates. 
the number of times I watch a politician in debate and they get asked a question and then they talk for their like two minutes. And I'm like, you never answered the question. I don't even know what you just said. That's a great example of what not to do. Um, <laughs> but I was going to say in the comments, in the chat on the side, I saw something about how to make the argument and when to argue for a change or try to get buy-in when you have an organization that has a history of not taking the advice and not wanting to hear ideas. And I, I have been in that situation. So I wanted to chime in on that chat point about, I think for me, it came down to being strategic what things having to learn, what things are worth fighting for, what things I feel strongly and passionately enough about to really push. And then a lot of times it goes back to what Linda Ann referenced about finding your allies and finding your champions and doing some of that background work to get the buy-in on the on the quiet side before you go into the meeting and make a proposal. Because that I think makes a bigger impact. If it's something you really, really care about, for me, I would always rather have said it and be told no, if it's something I care enough about and then move on. But it's also picking which battles are those things that if I already know it's not going to get listened to, it's not worth chiming in versus finding the strategy and taking the time to move around it. If I care enough, if I really think it's a big enough impact. Um, yeah. And you know, you're absolutely right about politicians um, and they're gifted at it and it's not accidental. They know what they're doing. I was once, this is years ago, but during an election here, I was actually invited by a television station to come on and translate what politicians had actually said during their campaign. There was a great politician up here in Canada, a French Canadian by the name of Jean Chrétien, who was so gifted at this. You know, reporters would ask him, the economy is in shambles, you know, everything is going wrong. What are you going to do? And he would go, well, you know, as the prime minister, I think it's a lot like the Montreal Canadiens. They are a great hockey team and they play well together and they work hard. And that's what we need in this country. And it's like, OK, but you didn't answer the question. <laughs> but yeah, it's a skill. They have it. Linda, Ann, let's go to you. Yeah, I'd like to um, just piggyback on what, what Laura said about, you know, sometimes you have to pick your battles and so forth uh, um, because they're not ready to hear what you have to tell them. On the other side of that, sometimes you have to play the long game, right? Change takes time. And so to bring it up now so that they get used to the idea and then bring it up again, it might be a year, 18 months before they're really ready to go. Yeah, we kind of need that now, but it takes that awareness and, and it's not going to happen in, you know, that 45 minute meeting or whatever. So sometimes, and that's where, you know, as long as you don't care whose idea it really is, um, <laughs> that that it's it's the long game and if, if you really want the change it doesn't matter where how it happens but just that that it happens <clears throat> the other thing that i think that that goes along with that is often when they're not really enthused about make taking up that idea and and making that change it's because they're not feeling the pain enough yet they don't have a great enough need and so it might be that I mean, if you know that that train's coming down the track, they might need to be more aware of how important or um, urgent it really is. And they need to be more aware of what the pain point is. Yeah. Do you, do you think we're there yet? Because we, we keep talking about how as we go through change, it's usually those managers who don't have the skill set to operate in that new paradigm. They really become the roadblock. So do you think they're feeling the pain yet enough that change is going to accelerate? I think that's different for everybody, you know, but um, 
I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge that most of the time before we really get people to buy into change is it takes an education process. You know, I go through a, an education process and then a coaching process to get them to go, oh, this is how it relates to me. This is where my part is, right? That's the whipping part. And what can I do about it? And then go through the consultation part where now they have a need for the solution and you can help them for the solution with the solution. So I go through an education, coaching and con- consultation process. I love that. Dr. Martha, let's go to you. What a great point by Linda Ann, getting your audience used to this idea, which eventually they will have no choice but to make this change. But because you've taken the time to, like Linda Ann said, educate them and prepare them and get them used to hearing about this, when the time comes where they have no choice, they will have an option they won't feel so lost. You will have done all that prep work. And this was just another bit of brilliance from Linda Ann. I just love that because, you know, we go into this with our best intentions and we say, here it is, do this. And I promise you it'll get better. And why are you fighting me? Why aren't you doing this? I'm telling you this will work. And you're beating your head against the wall and they're just not biting. But if you prepare them in the way that Linda Ann suggested, then you can save some bruising on your own forehead from not having to beat the head against the wall because you're laying down the groundwork. So I just had to comment on that. That was just brilliant. I love that. Bruises. I think I have a few concussions from the past. (laughs) Lee, let's go to you. Okay, there it is. You know, one thing that uh, I'm suddenly reminded of is as, as a parent, you know, with your kids, I'm trying to help you. Why are you making this difficult? And oftentimes, you know, employees act like children in the same way. You know, I'm trying to help you. Why are you making this difficult? So, uh, yeah, that was just an inspiration that hit me there. But, um, you know, one thing, if you're in a, a consultant or a an upper leadership position, uh, This is one of those communication, knowing your people kind of things that if there are people in your organization who are regularly roadblocked, people who get dragged and screaming into into change, um, you need to figure that out. And so when you come to a point where you have to change or you want to change, you need to make sure that you know where your your gremlins are, who is going to throw a wrench in the gears. And you need to make sure that you're paying enough attention that um, you don't get caught blindsided by that and things are happening. Uh, I, I worked at an organization where the the CEO, or uh, I guess he was president, I guess, would catch you at awkward moments and ask you questions, not the bosses, you. And a lot of times he already knew the answer, but really, and, and of course, we learned really quickly, as soon as you got caught by one of these, you immediately went to your boss and said, well, by the way, I just had this conversation so that they didn't get blindsided because he wanted to make sure that the supervisory level, the, you know, the middle management guys weren't stopping the flow of information up to his ivory tower. And he was going to make sure of it. And uh, I don't necessarily advocate that because he would catch you at very awkward times. But uh, but being able to do the, you know, the undercover boss or whatever, you know, however you work it, where you figure out where your pain points are and you need to fix it, either through coaching or uh 
having them go work for someone else or, you know, whatever that may be. Yeah, a hundred percent. Linda, let's go to you next. Then Dr. Destiny, I want to come back to you. So I love what Lee said, because those wrench throwers can be such a gift because you really know where the objections are and you really know who you need to convince or to um, bring onto your side. And so sometimes those people who are your biggest roadblocks, if they reveal themselves, (laughs) can be uh, once you get them to understand if you can focus on that and, and do what it takes to get them to understand, they can end up being one of your biggest advocates. So um, it's when they reveal themselves, they can be a real gift. Yeah, that you you turned a, a negative into a positive for me. So thank you on that. Um, Dr. Destiny, we, we've been going for about 45 minutes now. How are we doing on this topic? What are some of your insights? And, and if you've been keeping an eye on the chat, what are some of the things that's been shared? Yeah. So one of the things that I shared earlier um, is a quote, and I think this might resonate with almost anyone that is listening in, is that change is disturbing when done to us and exhilarating when done by us. And so I think it's really important to just think about that. Right. And so, if you know, we've talked a lot about fear, you know, hesitation. How do we create allies? How do we, you know, have these change advocates? How do we get over, you know, maybe being shot down at one point? And now how do we stand back up? Just kind of keep that in mind that if you're not, you know, actively participating in that, then it's it's not going to like feel good. It's not going to work out or it may be, you know, it won't change ever. So it's exhilarating whenever we have a part in that. Uh, So, and and a lot of what we're talking about, once again, in the chat is about the ways to present ideas clearly, know your audience, know the differences between the way that you present. Uh, For example, are you presenting for influence or buy-in? Are you presenting information? Are you presenting, you know, uh, to an audience of stakeholders? If you are, you may want to like pull back on proprietary information, like all of these little tidbits that can really help or be your detriment especially whenever you're coming to the, you know, you're showcasing yourself and your skill sets. So those are just some of the things that we've been talking about, but I really love where this conversation has gone. And I think that, you know, everybody has a little bit of fear at some point when it comes to like standing up and saying something maybe isn't either good or should be, you know, addressed, or maybe you have this great idea that comes out of left field and you're trying to figure out how to like bring it to the forefront implement. And that's uncomfortable too. But where discomfort is, is always growth and opportunity. So it's easy to always say that, but it's really important to remember whenever you're feeling that self-doubt and, and, you know, questioning yourself. So, yeah, totally. Dr. Martha, let's go to you. You know, one of the things that comes to mind as I'm listening to this conversation evolve is the importance of not only practice, but preparing ourselves in what kind of presenter we are. And of course, this will vary by situation. Sometimes you're in a meeting and you're just presenting an idea versus you are the main presentation. But I think we can all relate to the one presenter who is just standing there, never moving from behind the podium, reading the slides directly and barely pausing for breath, uh, monotone, nothing happening, no pulse, versus a presenter who is engaging, who isn't reading, who is interacting with the audience. So I think that if a person is someone who is presenting ideas and trying to get buy-in on 
a somewhat regular basis, would do well to perhaps invest in him or herself with a professional who can teach them how to be engaging and interesting and not put people to sleep. Because, you know, we think about the importance of the information and the data and the truths behind it and the intentions. But if people are dozing off, nobody's taking in what you're saying. And there are plenty of situations where I think a present could have used a little help from a professional. So contact me here at CBOC. <laughs> Thank you for the advertisement. <laughs> um, but you're absolutely right. If, if, if you don't handle it properly, you're not doing yourself any favors. And none of it is rocket science. It's just information you need to know and practice. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. One thing that I, I don't want to go by the wayside today is the acknowledgement of the amount of courage it takes sometimes that to say what we, especially in, in these positions, what we have to provide to, as information or opportunities to people isn't always easy to say. It's not always a wonderful, you know, new opportunity. It's about things that they need to reflect on and it may not be the most positive reflection. So sometimes we have to um, really find courage and sometimes you can just do small things to practice being courageous, to get used to that. But I, one of the things when I first started in human resources, it took me a while to gain the confidence in exuding courage or executing courage to say what needed to be said at, in a hard situation. So that's just part of the process that we go through. I think that we all have to have a little bit of that courage um, to move forward. Yeah, stage fright is something that holds a lot of people back. Uh, glossophobia, I believe, is the official term. Uh, and there are a lot of ways to to help deal with it, you know, and and don't take some of that advice you hear from some coaches about, you know, imagining your audience in their underwear. Nobody really wants to do that. Um, don't, you know, glance over the audience, you know, and never look anyone in the eye uh, because it's what I call the sprinkler effect. Uh, you really have to connect with your audience. And if you do, that's the relationship you're looking for. Uh, Dr. Ariana, let's go to you. I love that Linda Ann is bringing in that content about being brave. And I think I always have to remind myself and remember that being brave is not the absence of fear. It's taking action with that fear. And it really goes into like Brene Brown's research around vulnerability. So anyone listening, hopefully you're very familiar with Brene Brown. If not, I suggest looking her up. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention since we're getting into some of the soft skills around this is also working with yourself and your own emotional intelligence levels around accepting rejection. Um, and this goes back to us talking about persistence and patience. But I feel like there were even times where I was more immature in the beginning of my career where I took a no really hard, you know, and like maybe was you know, just had like a little more attitude around it, you know, like, and so I think that's a natural reaction, especially when we're practicing bravery and vulnerability, but also, you know, be graceful in rejection, um, but don't give up. Yeah, I, I, I never hear a no as a no. I always hear a no as, okay, so what am I missing? How do I, how do I take your no, satisfy it? And so I can actually move forward with what I want to do. Um, talk to Martha, let's go to you. I don't take no for an answer. I think one of the things that is important to consider for the person trying to get buy-in 
is their place in the grand, grand um, scheme of things. If you are an external um, uh, consultant, um, your position when presenting will be different than if you are part of the organization. If you are in management for that organization, will be different than if you're an employee, a non-management employee in that organization. And I think that that's something that's important for the presenter to remember and consider and not allow that to stop them. Uh, because if you come in as an external consultant and you get shut down before you even finish your spiel, so to speak, it may be very easy to allow the audience to convince you, well, you don't know us, you don't know this organization, you don't know what's best for us. Similarly, if an employee presents an idea, it's so easy to get shut down by management. Well, you don't know what else goes on behind the scenes, so you, you don't have the full picture. But it's so important to not allow that to be the deciding factor of whether or not we continue to present what we need to present and and um, harness and that courage the best that we can. Because I think, you know, labels and titles, they can be empowering in certain situations and do just the opposite in other situations. So it's important not to get hung up on that and let that be a stopping point. There we go. You never know what's actually going on with an organization when you even go in to present. Uh, you know, I'll share a quick story. I went in with a, a clinical social worker once for an afternoon presentation with an organization. We were talking about better communication skills, the psychology of communication. It didn't really go very well. And we could tell there was something else going on. It wasn't until after our presentation where the person who had organized it came and apologized to us. They had almost canceled because that morning, somebody on the team had made a sexual assault claim on another member of the team. We had no idea that was going on, but we had to deal with a bunch of grumpy, upset people for the next three hours. <laughs> so yeah, you never know. Lee, let's go to you. Wow, that's a tough one to follow, Tom. <laughs> um, you know, uh, what was said previously made me think of the, you know, the untouchable, uh, the, you know, it's not personal, it's just business. You know, and I think one of the hardest things to do as people is to not take it personally. And, you know, chances are a lot of times the person that you're going and you're talking to really doesn't care about it. I mean, if we're going to be be blunt about it, especially if you're an external person, you know, a consultant or whatever, they don't know you. They don't really care. They're listening to what you're presenting. And so it's not necessarily a personal thing, at least not personal to you. It's personal to them. And uh, we as people have a big tendency to lose sight of that sometimes and you internalize it and you you take it like a personal attack. But, you know, it's, you have to step back and go, are they attacking me when sometimes the answer is yes? Or, or are they attacking what I'm saying? And then if they're attacking what I'm saying, why is, you know, what what is it? Do they not like the presentation? Do they not like the content? Or am I going, am I, am I challenging their deeply held beliefs? Um, you know, there's a lot more going on there, but it's definitely a, a thing to try not to take it personally. And even if it's a personal attack, sometimes it's just because the person's a jerk. And, and at that point, um, that's a them problem. And, uh, you know, my dad told me growing up that if somebody doesn't like you, it's their loss. And uh, there have been times in my life I have had to remind myself that more than once. 
And uh, so, but that is an important skill to learn as you grow older is that it's, it's not personal, it's just business. You know, I think we've all had the experience of sitting down with a potential client and going, yeah, this ain't going to work. Um, <laughs> I'm not working with you. Um, <laughs> I know that's happened to me a few times. Uh, luckily, not much, though. Uh, Dr. Destiny, we've got about five minutes left, so we should probably start thinking about wrapping up. Uh, but I know that we've got some other events coming up. Um, let's see, there's a momentum session happening October 11th from uh, 10 a.m. to 10.30 a.m., a quick half hour. Um, any details on that? Sure. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So one of the additional you know, parts of you know, the membership benefits for CBOC is that we want to create opportunities to get people moving, like you know, focused on, on the things that they can do, you know, how to start your week off. Maybe it's, you know, hey, something this week I want to do is start, you know, leaning into this idea of bringing to the attention of leadership a change initiative or something. And so the momentum the momentum sessions are designed to be able to kind of just get people, you know, moving forward. You know, they're going to be uh, hosted by different CBOC experts and coaches, and that way you have a different kind of feel each, you know, time. Uh, and that way too, you know, we each have our own kind of style and the questions that we might ask to kind of help your, you know, get your week going. So they're just designed to get people planning forward and and seeing how we can support each other in that process. And if you're listening to the podcast and you're not a member of CBOC, join us because CBOC is all about helping IOs advance and better their careers. Not only those people who are, you know, just starting out, but we've got tons of expertise there of people who have transitioned mid-career or have gone from, you know, working in an office to be an entrepreneur and being on their own. Uh, next Thursday, we're going to talk about best work break ideas. What's that about? Well, I guess that, uh, that that's why we need people to come chat, right? Because we want to know what's out there and what people are doing. You know, there's organizations out there, for example, that are doing uh, walking meetings, uh, and different things that are kind of, you know, allowing creativity to flow and more conversational things to happen. And so there's all these ideas out there, especially now that we're talking about, you know, a different kind of workforce, you know, hybrid versus you know, on-site versus fully remote. Those work break ideas might vary very differently, <laughs> very, very differently <laughs> from one another as well. So that's what we want people to talk about. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I've been asked recently about, you know, where's the future of work going? What's all this happening? And I've realized that we've kind of forgotten that there's actually a new sort of opportunity, which especially a lot of younger workers are taking advantage of. And that's they don't really care about hybrid, remote or co-located. They ain't working for anybody else. It's the entrepreneurial market, especially for the online world, uh, because you can make money. <laughs> so a lot of people are just totally ditching working for corporations and it is having an effect of where do I find workers today? Um, growing concerns. So that's going to be a great conversation. And finally, just some final thoughts on, on what we've been hearing today. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, something you can always kind of conduct for yourself or maybe for your organization is going back to the very, you know, basic SWOT analysis on something like this, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, you know, those things that we did back in the <laughs> basic classes of business or whenever you're formulating your business model and plan, a SWOT analysis is always something. And then last, 
it's about shared ownership in these processes. So the whole time that the conversation has been threaded about advocacy and change advocates and having that shared ownership in a process is really critical to not only, you know, people accepting the idea, but also being okay with moving it forward and, you know, giving it trajectory. So it's something to consider for organizations and leaders and people who are trying to get their ideas across. How do we create shared ownership and get everyone involved in decision-making? That's a great place to wrap it up. And so with that, thank you very much, everyone. I am so lucky to be surrounded every week by such amazingly smart and talented people. Thank you, everyone, for your contributions today. Thank you for listening. If you're listening to the recording, get in touch with us at CBOC. And everybody, have a great day. We'll see you in one week's time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seaboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seaboc.com.